This episode of Talk Your Book is proudly brought to you by Honan, providing a complete range of insurance, risk, and financial solutions. Bundy's called me up, told me to take a look, but stay stubborn as bulls and talk their own book. Get the money, get the money, get, get the money. Well, Marcus Gazzardi, thanks very much for coming back on Talk Your Book. We were sitting around the office uh, a few months ago and ratings have been very high and we, we all said we need someone who's going to bring a bit more sizzle to keep this uh, momentum going and, and your name come up. So thanks very much for coming back on the show. No, no, thanks for having me and I'll do my best. <laughs> now, talk me through the Global Equities Fund. You're running it at Cooper Investors. Uh, how, you got, how have you guys been going? And maybe more broadly, what's, what's your investment philosophy for those that haven't heard the story? Yeah, so, I mean, Cooper Investors, we've been uh, around, this is actually our 20th year as an organisation, and we've always done one thing, long-term, long-only equities. Um, you know, we manage $13 billion across domestic Aussie equities, which is where we started out. Um, and increasingly the global equities part of our business is, is where the growth is. Where we're investing is the same strategy though. Um, and to sort of summarize that in a couple of sentences, um, the investment process is very qualitative led, not to say that we ignore the numbers, they're obviously very important, but where we've found that we've been able to add and create the most value is when we spend our time thinking about company cultures and strategy and, and management teams, um, and how they're behaving in terms of their pursuit of making companies more valuable um, or what we like to call value latency. Um, so the Global Equities Fund specifically, whereas where I spend my time, um, it's all about pulling together a portfolio concentrated 30 to 40 stocks um, of what we believe are a collection of world-class businesses with proprietorial management teams and cultures. And what stock did you want to walk us through today? Yeah, so I thought I'd talk about a business that um, probably a lot of your listeners are familiar with, if not as consumers, then as maybe parents or friends of consumers, and that's Activision Blizzard. Um, they're one of the leading global video game publishers. They're listed in the US under the ticker um, ATVI. Um, and what we see here is an opportunity for Activision, which has been you know, a phenomenal performer for, for many years now, to actually pivot and transition their business from what is a good business, video game publishing, into what we think can be a great business. Um, and that's, you know, a video game services company with much more predictable revenues, but also faster growth and higher margins. And this idea of, I guess, looking for businesses where there's an engaged management team um, working hard to transition and improve a business a little bit under the radar before the market sort of realises is, is something that's really common across our global equities portfolio. And so we'll dig into Activision Blizzard in more detail in, in a minute. But maybe first you start with a bit of an industry overview to give people an idea of just how big the, the gaming industry is and, and how quickly it's growing. That's really, that's, I think that's going to be really useful because, you know, how we got to Activision Blizzard was, a, you know, a bit of a journey for us. We spent a lot of time, I guess, looking for patterns um, that are emerging. And when we've seen those patterns emerge in areas where we do have deep domain expertise um, and it's correlated to attractive investment returns previously, that can often um, get us really excited about um, invest, an investment proposition and form the bedrock of that um, investment. So content as a, as a broader area is um, a space that we've been thinking about and investing in for decades at Cooper Investors. And, and content is really interesting because on one hand, you have this dynamic of um, you know, a visceral relationship that humans have with content. Think about you know, your favorite song or movie um, or maybe your favorite investing podcast um, <laughs> and how you sort of interact with that demand for content um, at a broad level is highly inelastic. But there's also this element of um, a dynamic relationship for content 
um, with technology and distribution. Um, now, what do I mean by that? Depending on where we are in that cycle, that can often determine whether content uh, makers and owners and creators are attractive from an investment standpoint. Um, you know, the recorded music industry in the 90s was actually absolutely going gangbusters. Everyone was buying CDs um, for new music, but also to replace their old sort of vinyl and, and cassette movie collections. Digital distribution comes along, completely decimates the industry, and it's only in the last two or three years that it's been able to actually return to growth again with the rise of services like Spotify and whatnot. Um, similar things been going on in TV and film for a number of years now with the rise of you know, on-demand streaming video services like Netflix and everyone else. Video games, in contrast, um, are very different where technology is an unequivocal tailwind. Um, you know, the best music's probably been recorded, the best movies have probably been made, but the best video games um, are yet to be created because technology is meaning that video game publishers can create um, richer and sort of, you know, more immersive content. Um, and what does all this mean? Well, the video game industry is a, remains a structural growth piece of that content spectrum. More and more players are getting more and more enjoyment um, interacting with video game content. Um, and so there's plenty of growth yet for this industry. Also what comes with that is a lot more ways to monetize those users. So um, several years ago, video game publishers were more of a hit driven sporadic business model. So you'd release a game, um, you'd hope to get as many sales as you could. Um, and if it was successful and it did really well, and if it didn't, well, then you'd just have to wait for the next time that version of that game was ready to be released. Now um, there's multiple monetization vectors for these video game publishers. So um, Activision Blizzard, when they release say Call of Duty, which is one of their core franchises, they can release a core game complement that with a free-to-play version and then complement that with a mobile version um, so they can massively expand the, the user base. Um, we think Activision Blizzard are in a like absolutely phenomenal position to sort of pivot their business to really benefit from these strengthening um, trends in the video game industry. We reckon they have the best collection of, of gaming IP in the industry and so the story for them is really double down on the content that they do have and just monetize it across those multiple vectors. Um, is it a case of a, like a bit of a reflexive feedback loop whereby the more people are on those video games, the more valuable they become because the easier it is to socialise and catch up with yeah. people online and it, it sort of keeps feeding on itself the more yeah. people choose to live in that virtual world? Yeah, that's definitely the case. I mean, um, you know, we might talk about this later, this concept of the metaverse where people spend, you know, increasing amounts of their time, not only playing games, but just going into video, the video game world to, to interact, listen to concerts, transacts through various forms of commerce um, and so you know video games are increasingly becoming not only a place where you, you know maybe you used to sit and play nintendo um, in front of the tv for hours on end and that was a, you know unless your friend was sitting next to you that was a solo experience um, now with the way um, you know video games are connected over the internet they're becoming social networks where you know many people are spending an increasing amount of time interacting with their friends in these you know gaming worlds um, and so yeah that feedback loop is very very powerful and there's a lot of data out there to show that you know if you move from you know playing a game on your own to interacting with one or two friends the amount of money that you spend in that game to do things like give you give your player a, a custom uniform or whatever mm. it grows exponentially and so who's i mean it feels like video games are the logical winner from this whole uh move towards this type of content but who's potentially losing market share like a sports in the guns is this attention yeah. that would have been spent at a pub in generations gone by where are the where's the attention and potentially the money coming from to support this new content? Yeah, so I mean, the video game industry is already you know qu quite large. I think on some measures it's about 150 you know a billion dollar industry and, and it's growing. 
compare that to music, that's about 70 billion. And I think, you know, the film and TV is about 100 billion. So it's already a lot bigger and, and it's growing. The losers, I mean, it's all just a competition for people's attention, right? Mm. And so the losers are likely to be forms of content which are um, either less interactive and so less enjoyable for people to spend time in or they're, or they're structurally over-monetizing their users. So, you know, a stat that I love to, to think about and lean on is I think the average um, video game content users are paying about, you know, 50 cents per hour of entertainment, which, you know, yeah, on many exactly. measures is, is very attractive. Compare that to, say, pay TV, which is probably the right analog, um, where the average cost is about $1.50 per hour of entertainment. Now, for many people, especially of younger generations, um, you know, sitting down and watching a TV show compared to playing a really immersive video game, it, it's just like chalk and cheese. And so, I mean, other forms of entertainment like video seem to be right in the gun um, as potential losers of, of the growth of the video game industry. And COVID was a, a material tailwind for the video gaming industry. Have yep. you viewed that as a, a short-term event or just part of a longer-term secular change in, uh, in the video gaming industry? Yeah, so it's, it's a little bit of both, but more, more the second, and I'll, and I'll explain what I mean by that. So, you know, obviously with everyone telling to, being told to, to shelter in place, um, something that people spent a lot more time doing was interacting with video game content. And so Activision Blizzard was certainly a beneficiary of that. And so, you know, the whole industry got an influx of demand throughout 2020. And, you know, they were lucky with a lot of other businesses struggling through 2020. They actually had one of their, one of their best years on, on record. Um, but one thing that I think is being missed, especially as it pertains to Activision Blizzard is this was the first year where one of their core franchises, Call of Duty, they actually had in the market those multiple vectors of monetization. So they had core Call of Duty version complemented with a free-to-play version where you monetize players you know, after they've become engaged and hooked on the game, uh, and then a mobile version of the game. And the results for just that Call of Duty franchise were phenomenal. I think they had like a 3x increase in the number of Call of Duty players and a doubling of the profits just from that Call of Duty piece. And so the observation for us was called um, coronavirus created this influx of demand, but whilst it was a tailwind for the industry, Activision Blizzard have a better sale and a better ship. And so what gets us really excited is we know and expect over the next two to three years, Activision is gonna replicate this strategy of monetizing their core content over multiple vectors of monetization over three or four other key pieces of franchise. And so when you think about what the earnings power of this business might be, if they have the success like they had with Call of Duty, I mean, it'll be significantly higher than it is today. And I know you're huge for the quality of management and the economic that builds. Talk me through Bobby Caddick and the, the job he's, he's doing leading the ship. Yeah, so we certainly do spend a lot of time um, thinking about management teams at Cooper Investors and we go into a, um, a lot of effort to codify exactly what we're looking for. And as part of that, we classify management teams into one of, one of three categories. So family and family businesses, um, you know, reasonably self-explanatory, you know, deep industry um, and domain expertise, long-term time horizons in terms of how they think, counter-cyclical capital allocation, almost the benchmark that you want to hold a lot of management teams up against. Um, next category, owner-operator cultures, you know, look and feel a lot like family and family businesses. They're just mm. technically not, but they've got a phenomenal long-term track record of creating value. And then the last piece is, for us is specialized focus managers and they're um, people with the deep domain expertise. We've often invested with them previously and they've moved over to a company to sort of improve that operating performance. So Bobby Kotick of Activision um, falls in that owner operator culture. He's, he's almost a founder and I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by that. So in the early nineties together with his um, business partner, Brian Kelly, who's actually the chairman of Activision Blizzard, they acquired a, a gaming studio for around 400,000 
$400,000. And that gaming studio were basically the, the foundation assets of what would become Activision Blizzard. So over the subsequent 30 years through um, phenomenal operational execution and, and first-class capital allocation, um, that $400,000 is basically compounded into what Activision Blizzard is today, a $75 billion leading um, video game um, publisher. Um, you know, one of the great track records of value creation that we've ever really seen in, in content or markets. Now, I think it's worth really double clicking on that idea of capital allocation because you know, there's often a lot of skepticism out in the market and we, and we certainly agree with a lot of it. You know, there's empirical research that proves that, you know, a lot of corporate M&A, um, if it doesn't fail to create value, unfortunately, it destroys value uh, often for, for shareholders. But, but the flip side is when you find a, a, a manager or CEO like Bobby Kotick who you know, to use a throwaway line, but we actually believe it. I mean, you can see around corners. When you have someone like that allocating capital on behalf of you, it can be hugely value accretive and often underappreciated by the market just because they're jaded by all the poor um, acquisitions that, that they've seen in other companies um, previously. And I think, you know, a, a really good example of this, and it's, it's almost come full circle, is an acquisition that um, Activision made about five years ago of a business called um, King, King Digital. And they're probably most well known as the makers of Candy Crush. So they're um, experts in, in mobile game development. And at the time, the feedback and the press and, and investor skepticism and, and you know, everyone was saying, what, what's Bobby done? He's gone and spent $6 billion on this mobile gaming studio. Mobile gaming's a fad. No one's gonna be playing Candy Crush in, in, in two years. But you know, what else, what's actually happened is Bobby's got two really important assets from that. He's got a very valuable and persistent earning stream. Might be hard to believe for you and I, but there's still over 200 million people playing um, Candy Crush on a monthly basis. It's been one of the most successful mobile um, uh, mobile gaming franchises in history. And he also brought in um, the skill set um, to help him on the mobile game development side because he, re he recognised that increasingly, you know, the fastest growing segment of the video game industry um, is going to be the mobile portion um, of the spectrum. And so the opportunity for them to take Call of Duty and over time World of Warcraft, Overwatch, all these much loved um, console and PC games, put them into the mobile market um, is going to be a significant um, upside to users and people engaging with their content. And just to draw a line under that story, um, in the last few months, Electronic Arts, who are, you know, the makers of FIFA and a bunch of other games and another sort of AAA game publisher, they acquired a, a mobile gaming studio called, called Glue. Um, we think it's you know, an inferior asset to King. They end up paying 20 times earnings for a worse business. And when Bobby made the acquisition five years ago and, and everyone was you know, laughing at him, he paid less than 10 times earnings. So okay. you know, that really underlines how impactful very savvy capital allocation can be in terms of shareholder returns. And talk me through the numbers. What's the market cap uh, revenue? What can you see the revenue growing by? Uh, yeah. Maybe we'll start on there and then get into some return on capital and free cash flow numbers. Yeah, so um, at the moment, um, the market cap of Activision Blizzard is just, you know, $73, $74 billion. Um, they generate about $8 billion in revenues and that grew about 25% last year. Um, over time, it's been a sort of mid to high single digit grower. We think, you know, structurally they can, they can move that up given all the strong industry tailwinds and the, the replication of that Call of Duty strategy across um, some of their other key franchises. Operating profit about $3 billion. Um, that grew significantly last year, close to 50%. So, so you know, this business is really profitable, mid 30% operating profit margin, you know, really cash generative, um, very low capital intensity. So they convert all their accounting profits to free cash flow, you know, returns on funds employed or whatever measure you want to use. Again, really attractive, 25, 30%. Um, and another thing I think 
you know, gets back to that capital allocation opportunity. I mean, they carry no debt. They've got $5 billion of net cash on the balance sheet. So when the right acquisition comes along, um, you know, Bobby's ready to go. And you, you mentioned Bobby's ability to see around corners and, and the idea that it's such a fast growing industry, it's hard to predict where it's going to go. Um, maybe dig into the, the esports side of things and, and how that could be a potential tailwind for, uh, for Activision Blizzard. Yeah, so, I mean, esports is certainly, a, you know, it's a massive market and I think... On, maybe on even just articulate, sorry to jump in, maybe just articulate for, for viewers that aren't that familiar with gaming and esports, maybe the yeah. differentiation be- between how the two are, are framed to start with. Yeah, so esports is this idea of people playing computer games um, competitively. Um, you know, I, I'm not as much of a gamer now as I was when I was a kid, but I reckon if I told my mum, you know, if I play, if I, if, I, uh, if I do this enough, there's a dollar in it, she might have got off my back and, um, you know, uh, not, not forced me to do my homework. But, uh, I mean, this is a huge and growing market, this idea of not only people playing competitively, but people who just play the games um, for leisure purposes, then tuning in and watching these competitive mm. tournaments. It's like, you know, going and watch the, you know, the grand final of the MCG. And so, but the thing that I think a lot of people don't appreciate is um, on many measures, the esports market is multiples the size of any traditional sports. M- maybe soccer would be the only one that would be competitive because it's a, you know, it's a truly global sport. And the, the actual young kids, well, often youngish kids or people in their early 20s, they're starting to get paid big, oh, big for sure. sums, you know, tens of millions of dollars sort of annually yeah, yeah, um, yeah, to play yeah. these games, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, the prize pools for some of these tournaments are definitely in the millions of dollars. I mean, there's, there's no doubt about that. And so for, for Activision, I mean, some of their games, there's a Call of Duty tournament, um, there's an Overwatch League. Um, and so, you know, some of their games are right in the sweet spot to be benefiting from these talents. At the moment, monetization in terms of being being really material for the video game publishers probably hasn't followed the growth and the um, level of engagement in in esports. I mean, there's probably a number of reasons for that, um, but you know, it's a very very powerful marketing tool for for Activision. So I think if you ask most um, companies if one of their most potent uh, marketing channels was you know didn't cost them any money, maybe made them a little bit, you know, they take that every day of the week, right? Um, over time. Yeah, for sure. I think it's going to be a material source of um, revenues and earnings, very high margin earnings for for a business like Activision Blizzard. The monetization model probably looks similar to what we've seen in traditional sports. So some sort of broadcasting um, subscription viewership um, package and then, you know, maybe some sponsorship around that as well. It's a, it's a... It's still when you're not in that world, like the idea of Foxtel showing a, an esports yeah. tournament or... It's probably closer than we all we all think. Oh, I mean, maybe it'll all yeah. be done online through yeah. a bunch of different avenues. But you know, these people are watching it for hours and hours at a time, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it all links into. I mean, Amazon own a, a property called Twitch, which is um, where people often go to just watch people play games, not necessarily even in a competitive yeah. format. Um, and that's been you know one of one of the actually great acquisitions and uh, probably not even material in many ways for Amazon, but you know, just just a you know huge a juggernaut of a media property. Really, and and I mean, this gets back to the, I guess, the power of video games as a and the tailwinds of technology. Um, Google through their, through some of the assets and, and things that they've been able to piece together, they're talking about um, adding functionality where you can be watching someone play live on YouTube, whatever game, and then you know when the infrastructure is there and the, cl- the cloud computing and latency can support it you just sort of click on the YouTube video and then you jump into the game and play the level exactly as they were doing it. And, yeah. you know, that level of interactivity, again, it's just what I was getting back to at the start. I mean, 
the way people are interacting with this stuff is just ramping up at a rate that makes it a really compelling consumer proposition, but also investment opportunity. And it's not just the video games themselves anymore. There are entire almost virtual communities springing up inside these games. You know, we hear stories about the metaverse and music concerts happening inside a digital video game or we know there's different currencies that have been created that have been used in these games or digital land sales or different avatars and equipment that can be bought and does it do you see this as sort of an optionality on on revenue that perhaps hasn't been thought of yet but these games will create ecosystems of their own that end up being much more valuable tomorrow than they are today yeah for sure i mean i think i mean this idea of the metaverse you know the poster child for this is is um you know, a game called, called Fortnite, which comes from another publisher, but they've really pioneered this idea of, A, free to play, so just let everyone get into the universe and, and play, um, and then we monetize them with microtransactions, so, you know, mm. a silly hat or a different colored gun or, or whatever that may be, and it only costs a few dollars, but when, when people are playing these games for months and years on end, in the end, you end up monetizing them at a rate that is higher than what you would have, would have sold them a game for 50 or $60 up front. Um, and like, like you said, within that Fortnite universe, there's live concerts which people are paying to attend. Um, there's people is there someone ballot. shooting at you while you're in the concert or is there yeah, I don't know. I don't know if a they, bit I of relief think, that once you yeah, go to the concert, yeah. the guns get put down at the front yeah, door? Yeah. I think you have to holster your weapon when, you, when you're into the, uh, into the stage. But, I mean, yeah, for sure, um, Activision Blizzard through um, some of their forms of IP, they've got the opportunity to create, I guess what I would call, sort of mini metaverses where people can spend, you know, persistent amounts of time in, um, in, in digital worlds like the World of Warcraft world, um, I think is a really good example of one. But then there's, you know, some others which I think they can replicate that, that strategy um, for sure. It's not too dissimilar to, we're already seeing so many people spend so much of their life on social media and they create a whole different persona for their social media uh, handle and personality to what yeah. their, their personality is like in the real life. It's not that uncommon for lots of people, even outside of video game, gaming, to be moving to spend more and more of their life in a, a quasi virtual world. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, this idea of um, brands and status signaling is something that we're all very familiar with in, mm. in you know, called the real world. It's not uncommon now for brands to actually provide digital versions of their products for characters to wear in games. I mean, I'm pretty sure. Nike have some sort of, you know, Air Jordan that characters in certain games can wear while they're playing around. I mean, that's good for Nike and it's also good for video game publishers because, I mean, you think of the margins of um, getting a programmer to code up a, a shoe with a tick on it and sell it for people, whatever it is, I think $5, 10 $20 probably for some of that content. Um, you know, that's, that's a really lucrative uh, revenue opportunity for a video game publisher. And can we go to Thailand markets and buy some counterfeit Nikes if we're short <laughs> on for a dollar? Yeah, uh, I like that, yeah. <laughs> and uh, just to finish up, mate, uh, talk me through sort of valuation where you could see it getting to in, in the next couple of years. Yeah, so when we think of valuation at Cooper Investors, we use this framework of value latency. Um, and so what that really means is um, we think about what are we paying for the base business today? Um, and so for Activision Blizzard, we reckon we're paying about a market multiple of operating income, which we think is you know, really attractive for a business of this quality, definitely better than the average, say, S&P 500 company. And then the latencies on top, what can management do to significantly enhance the value of this business? And you know, hopefully it's come across through our conversation. The story for Activision Blizzard is monetize your existing IP across these multiple vectors. Now, we saw the success of Call of Duty in 2020. We're really confident that management are going to replicate that 
over uh, two or three other key pieces of content um, within the next four years. And just to put some numbers around that, across all of um, Activision Blizzard's um, games today, they um, have about 400 million um, active users. We think within four years, they're going to be able to double that to call it 750, 800 million. Free cash flow should follow accordingly. Um, couple that with the fact that the quality of these cash flows is going to be significantly higher. So they won't be monetizing in a heat-driven sporadic model. They'll have multiple monetization vectors and, and multiple games that are delivering them revenues. So we think that deserves a higher multiple. So when you put those two things together, um, there's enough there to really underwrite um, what we believe is a really attractive mid-teens annual return for a business of this quality that's you know exceptionally compelling. And then on top of that, you can layer in latencies around what esports does, a metaverse, Bobby Kodak finding something really interesting to buy. Guys, brilliant as always, mate. Thanks very much for uh, taking the time and appreciate uh, appreciate you walking us through the opportunity. Cheers, Chris. Thanks for having me. This episode of Talk Your Book was proudly brought to you by Honan, who go beyond a transactional insurance broker to deliver better outcomes for their clients. If you're enjoying Talk Your Book, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest. Please don't take anything you hear on this podcast as investment advice. Do your own research or seek out a professional investment advisor before committing any money into these markets.